so we're on now. Well, today I have the distinct pleasure of talking to American writer, former professor and media commentator, lecturer, and the current editor of Culture Wars magazine, Mr. Eugene Michael Jones, author of several important books on American culture, sexual revolution, the Catholic Church, capitalism, and the Jews. One of his major works, Libido Dominandi, have been translated and published in Brazil a couple of years ago, and now another one of his books is being released by Vidya Editorial, which is uh, Degenerate Moderns, Modernity as Rationalized Sexual Misbehavior. Now, for those of you who don't know, just a quick uh, introduction. Mr. Jones is a very prolific author, having published more than 15 books in the past 30 years, aside from having created a magazine on cultural affairs, initially known as Fidelity, now culture wars, with the purpose of documenting, documenting and trying to understand the subversion of the Catholic Church since the end of the Second Vatican Council. He's one of the one of today's most eminent, eminent Catholic thinkers, and he has had his books banned from Amazon and has been fired from a Catholic college in Indiana, St. Mary's College, because of his stance on abortion. He's against abortion. Well, Mr. Jones, Thank you very much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, and it's good to talk to you. Well, I want to jump right into the, the, the subject here. So right at the beginning of your book, uh, Degenerate Moderns, you state very clearly what is your main uh, thesis. That is, uh, that all intellectual and cultural uh, breakthroughs of modernity uh, were in some way or another linked to the sexual desires that their progenitors knew to be illicit. So uh, their theories were automatically rationalizations of the choices that they knew to be wrong. So I wanna start by asking, what gave, you, uh, what gave you the hint that this was the case? I mean, what motivated you to write this book? Did, did it come at all from the experience you had uh, had ear, years earlier at the St. Mary's College? Yes, it did. Uh, and uh, graduate school as well. So uh, to get back to that moment, uh, uh, I got fired for being against abortion at a Catholic college. At this point, I decided there, there's something big, a big story here that I must have missed because I was a, a, an apostate. I was out of the church for a while. I lived in Europe for a while. And then I was in graduate school just concentrating on uh, intellectual stuff. And so uh, for a period of about 10 years, I just wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the Catholic Church. So when I got to St. Mary's, I realized that the feminists had taken over the college over this 10-year period. And uh, uh, I got fired. So at this point, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going back to academe. And I think that was the right decision because academe has only gotten worse during this period of time. Those forces that fired me now control all of discourse in North America. Uh, they are the descendants of uh, Foucault and Gramsci, and we can talk about that later if you want. Uh, so I, I thought, well, I'm going. This is a Catholic magazine. I'm going to talk about Catholic issues, and so for about um, eight years, that's what I did. And I got more and more deeply involved in the Catholic issues. And one of the issues that came up was Medjugorje. Okay, all the people that subscribed to the magazine wanted me to talk about Medjugorje. What do you think? And so I didn't know what to think because every time I read about it, I got more and more confused. Mm -hmm. And it was clear that there was some type of agenda here. You know, suddenly in the, the mid-80s, all these glossy magazines are coming out with all these pictures of these seers and so on and so forth. Uh, somebody was behind this. So I started to look into it. I figured out what was going on, I think. 
and I uh, wrote a book called uh, The Magic or uh, the, the, the Other Side of what was it called now? The Other Side, the Medjugorje, The Untold Story. Uh, that came out. I went to, flew to uh, uh, Yugoslavia. There was still a Yugoslavia at this point. Flew there in May of 1988. In September of 1988, the book came out, exposed, I think, the whole fraud behind Medjugorje, who was behind it. It was the Franciscans. It was a hoax, and so on and so forth. And I waited to receive the Nobel Prize or maybe the Pulitzer Prize, because I thought this was a great piece of investigative journalism. And what happened is that uh, most of my subscribers canceled their subscription because they didn't want to know. We don't want to know this. So uh, Pat Buchanan's brother wrote uh, a letter to the editor in which he said, I'm praying to the Blessed Version that you have a massive heart attack and die. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm sure he meant that in a positive sense. Uh, but at this point, I became really disillusioned with Catholic journalism. I mean, you build up this, uh, this list of people, you know, you create this magazine, you got it going, it's, it's getting more and more subscribers. And then you tell the truth about something they ask you to talk about, and they all want to cancel their subscription. So I, it was at this moment of disillusionment that I started uh, looking into biographies. And I read a biography of Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre was very important when I was uh, in college and undergraduate. Existentialism was considered an important uh, philosophical development. And here, uh, nobody was willing, no big publishing house was willing to pay for a, uh, a biography of John Paul Sartre. The book came out anyway. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, uh, existence precedes essence. I think that's what existentialism is about. And then reading passages that I simply could not understand. And I thought, well, I guess I'm stupid, and that's the reason. And well, when I read the biography, it turns out that he used dexedrine, which is an amphetamine, uh, to write for 20 hours at a stretch. And as a result, it, it was kind of obscure. And then I thought, well, maybe, since it's not me, maybe it's him. Mm -hmm. And then I began to look into the lives of the people who were the pillars of modernity, which are the people that I studied when I was a, an undergraduate at the, at the university. And suddenly this pattern began to emerge of uh, every single breakthrough, it seemed to me, in modern life could be traceable to some type of sexual disorientation, uh, a, a rebellion against the, the sexual, uh, uh, sexual morality and an attempt not just to rebel. We all rebel against morality at one point or another. That's called sin. But a, an attempt to make this normative, make this rebellion normative and give it some type of heavy scientific ideological basis. Years, years later, I never did, a, I never did a, a, a portrait of Bertrand Russell, but I could have because he certainly fits this pattern. And Bertrand Russell uh, started out as a philosopher, and then at some point he ended up being a popularizer. And one of the, the English ladies noticed this, and she went up to him and said, um, you know, we had great hopes for you as a philosopher, and you seem to have gone into something else. What happened? He said, I think I found that I preferred fucking instead. Well, there, there you summarize the whole thing. Yeah. Aldous Huxley did the same thing in uh, Means Versus Ends, I believe that's the book, where he said the main, the main uh, uh, attraction for communism in the uh, 1930s was sexual liberation. Now, these were all things I found out after the fact, 
after the book had been published and it kind of vindicated my thing. And that led to the main thesis of the book, which you rendered in beautiful Portuguese, and which is basically, uh, when it comes to intellectual life, you can either subordinate the truth, your desires to the truth, or the truth to your desires. Now, if you subordinate your desires to the truth, your desires aren't relevant anymore. And your biography isn't all that relevant either because you're talking about the truth. But if you do the opposite, if you subordinate the truth to your desires, well, your desires are the most important thing in your, and whatever you want to call it, your ideology or philosophy or whatever. That's the most important thing. And that is the thing that will explicate your system. And that's what I realized. So it's, it's, it's two possibilities here. And the second possibility uh, the biography is the most important element of your life because yep. that's where we discover the key of what you're really talking about. That, that's, uh, that's, to me, is like the essence of what you call modernity, like the pursuit of conforming the truth to one's own desire. Right? So uh, yes. do you think that in this sense we're still living through modernity? Like, or do you think you can say that, as it often is said, that we are postmodernists if there is such a thing? Yes, uh, we are. First, first of all, that nothing has changed. Okay, well, let me let me back up a little bit. Yeah, Let's okay. take a, a postmodern thinker like uh, Jacques Derrida, okay. who would ridicule. He he ridiculed Sartre as the classic modernist thinker. Called him a, a philosopher for shop girls or uh, you know girls that work in stores. I don't know why that is. That something bad to do? I guess Derrida's uh, exposing his own uh, prejudices here. Yeah. But the, the, what, what changed was that the, the moderns uh, believed that there was such a thing as reality. And the postmoderns believe that reality is simply a construct of the mind. And so, therefore, there's, there's nothing there. there this is the, the, big, the big triumph of structuralism and then post-structuralism, deconstructionism. There's no reality. Everything is humanly constructed. Well, if everything is humanly constructed, then what I said is even more important. Okay? Because everything comes from you from your mind and, and and your mind is a function of your past life and and all the uh, actions that you have committed in that sense i believe in existentialism okay uh, you are a creature of your habits and so therefore i need to know your habits and your attitudes before i can make a judgment about your ideology since you are the one who said everything is just a creation of the mind yeah yeah so it's that's what you mean when you say that uh, intellectual life is a function of the moral life of the thinker. Right, right. And this was obviously something that the ancients knew. And uh, so Aquinas would say that lust darkens the mind. So in other words, uh, if your uh, mind is clouded by passion, uh, you can't perceive reality correctly. It's like looking through a dirty window, you know, the window is covered with mud and all your after a while all we're seeing is the you're describing the pattern of mud on the window but you're not describing what's what's outside of the window and in that we have things like uh stream of consciousness writing like james joyce uh especially uh finnegan's wake uh you have uh cubism picasso uh, I, there's a whole chapter on picasso in degenerate moderns yep uh, and uh, worse, you have goes to uh, 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 abstract expressionism, 
uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so, uh, again, in, in each of these instances, the mind of the creator is the most important thing. It's, in a sense, the only important thing. That's what we need to, to, to figure out here. That's yeah. what we have to figure out if we want to understand the real basis of, of what uh, his uh, purported uh, intellectual breakthrough is. Yeah, you, and you also mentioned a book that is uh, parallel to this, uh, um, uh, to, to yours, which is uh, Paul Johnson's Intellectuals. And, and to me, the most interesting thing you say about it is that for some reason, Johnson was uh, uh, a little uh, sort of shy to openly declare what you're declaring right now. I mean, the presuppositions of this argument, which is that intellectual product is the projection of inner uh, needs. Why do you think why do you think he didn't I mean, make that explicit? First of all, because he's an Englishman. Mm. And Englishmen are still slaves of empiricism, mm. uh, which means that they are phobic. They have a, an allergy and they get an allergic reaction when you ask them to generalize about something. It's just, this is the legacy of William of Ockham, where there are no universals in nature. Englishmen by nature do not believe in universals. And so you end up with these trivialities. They're good at trivialities. And the best, the best example would be logical positivism, the, the, the end of philosophy, which is the direct heir of, uh, I think, of, of William of Ockham as well. Uh, secondly, there is, well, let's look into Paul Johnson. <laughs> what about his personal life? Well, it turns out uh, after my book came out, there's a... Um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to be exact here, uh, a, a an audio recording of him spending some time with some woman engaging in some type of sexual activity that he shouldn't have been engaging in. Mm -hmm. So there you have the two combinations that will basically neuter what could have been a productive uh, uh, exercise in trying to get the bottom of something significant. Okay, definitely. Well, this, uh, although it seems like a, a very uh, admirable in the very deep uh, research in, you've done, like you have to understand the whole works of the, the thinker and then you have to read his biographies and then you have to correlate the, the, those two. So it's, it's a very deep um, uh, process, but some may say that, that this comes uh, uh, close to argumentum ad hominem, which is the attempt to disqualify someone's opinion by attacking uh, not the opinion itself, but the person who said it. I know it's not the case, but how, how do you answer that? How it's not the case? I'm not trying to attack anyone. There's no point in attacking. Why, why would I want to attack any of these figures? They're all dead. Okay. This is purely historical research. And uh, ad hominem uh, arguments uh, are, you know, are basically, uh, they're immediate. They're, they're immediate. They're, they have a, a particular goal in mind. So you're, you are saying, uh, uh, you know, like the it's raining out, and uh, someone says, "Well, you're just saying that because you grew up in California where it never rains, or something like that." Well, that, that's completely irrelevant to whether it's raining out or not. You know what I mean? Why are you dragging? Or usually, some type of moral flaw, which is selectively uh, uh, brought into play, uh, and that's not what I'm trying to do. It's simply not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying. I'm saying that these works are by themselves incomprehensible simply on face value. So, for example, the question of Margaret Mead, uh, she says that uh, uh, Samoa is this free love paradise where people don't get upset about sexuality. 
Well, the, the Australian uh, went there and gave all of this evidence. Well, yeah, they do get upset. You know, if, if, they, if a guy, Samoan, finds you sitting under a palm tree with his sister, he'll beat you up. They have a, a culture of violent rape and so on and so forth. Well, how does this fit into the picture that Margaret Mead gave of us? of Blue Lagoon, the Blue Lagoon, that famous movie about your plane crashes in the South Pacific and you become at one with nature. How do you resolve that conflict? Well, you resolve it by going to the biography of the person who wrote it. So if Margaret Mead says that Samoans don't take adultery seriously and then someone provides evidence that they do, well, why did she say that? Well, it turns out that she committed adultery before she went to Samoa. And rather than repenting of her adultery, she decided to project it onto the poor Samoans who have suffered uh, that uh, uh, as a result. Mm -hmm. That's simply uh, a way of coming to an understanding of something, or let's put it this way, resolving some type of intellectual conflict when you've got two people saying two different things. Yeah, yeah. Great. So, well, uh, I want to ask you a little, uh, couple of things uh, outside of the theme of the book as well. Well, you have uh, recently been uh, the target of a, a you know a censorship campaign that ended up, you know, removing all your books from Amazon, deleting your YouTube channel, and uh, we see this happening everywhere nowadays, and in Brazil as well, exclusively with uh, Catholic and conservative thinkers and channels. So, how I want to know how how is this affecting you, and and what do you think could be done if there is uh, such a possibility to revert this uh, situation? Uh, how is it affecting us? I, I come to St. Paul. St. Paul said we are persecuted, but not abandoned. That is my situation. I am persecuted, but not abandoned. We continue to do what we're doing. The word continues to spread. You cannot stop the forward progress of Logos in human history. And that's what I'm talking about here. That's what the book Logos Rising is about. So you can't stop it. You can take out a gun. You can't shoot an idea. Okay, you can have a, a hand grenade, but you can't disperse fog with a hand grenade. Okay, and you can't stop these ideas. What you what happened over this period of time is this. Uh, once the uh, let's talk specifically about who's doing this. The Anti Defamation League is a Jewish money laundering operation that is exists to make sure that Jewish criminals don't go to jail. Uh, the main way they prevent Jewish criminals from going to jail is by accusing anyone who says anything bad about someone as an anti-Semite. And then they use this to use as a form of control. They are now trying to implement this as law in the United States of America by implementing the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's understanding of anti-Semitism as, quote, a certain perception. So what you're talking about is the Jewish hegemony over uh, American culture, which was first used to target people like me, who had written a book called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And now what happened over this last year is it got expanded now to include uh, basically 50% of the population of the United States of America, who are now being demonized as white supremacists, mm -hmm. as racist. And uh, not only that, they are uh, being banned now from YouTube if they disagree with uh, uh, Mr. Fauci about the COVID virus. Yeah. So what happened here is when you, when you cave in to these people, it only gets worse and their censorship expands beyond any rational uh, means. Nothing. 
there is nothing in the laws of the United States of America that would uh, allow for this. But if, if you make the laws, if Google makes the laws, if YouTube makes the laws, well, they are de facto government. And that is the position we're in right now. These tech giants are stronger than governments. You have a situation in Brazil where the tech giants are now uh, deplatforming people, but also the whole country is being held ransom to big pharma. The uh, head of Pfizer came down to Brazil and said, we want you to indemnify our vaccine which means if anybody dies and people are going to die, then the Brazilian government will have to pay for it and the pharmaceutical company won't. And if you don't do that, we're going to withhold our vaccine. Well, first of all, you should say, okay, take your vaccine. We don't want it because it's, a, it does, it's worthless anyway. But this is the type of threat that is being held over one country after another throughout the world right now. Now, one country that stood up to this was Poland. And Poland, uh, years before the Brazilian edition came out, Poland brought out a Polish language edition of Libido Dominandi. Yep. I did a book tour in Poland. The Catholic Church stood behind me. Uh, during this book tour, there was a kind of united front. And they defeated, uh, between the two of us, between my book and the bishops, we defeated gay marriage in Poland. Okay, now that's something they were telling me. I got this when I, I got this email when I was in Argentina, trying to talk uh, uh, an old philosophy professor off the ledge. He's ready to jump into the river in Entre Rios because he just feels that we've lost. We've lost the battle. We haven't lost the battle, and Poland is proof that we haven't lost the battle. But secondly, because they did that, because they stood up against uh, gay marriage, now they're in a position to stand up against big tech. Uh, the Google uh, Combine, the uh, uh, you know YouTube, all of these people. Because what they've done now is pass a law saying basically you can only deplatform uh, someone if he violates the laws of the state of Poland. If you use any other criteria, then the people of Poland have a right to sue you for damages. That is a just regulation of the whole problem of this new technology, this new information technology. That has to happen throughout the world now, yeah. okay? Every, every nation in the world has to pass laws saying basically, the, we are the people who make the laws. Google does not make the laws of this country. If you allow Google to make the laws, then they are de facto the government of your country no matter how many buildings you have with those pillars and all those Greek temples where people get together, they're meaningless unless you stop these people from making their laws and, and to rule you. And I'm saying specifically, the laws uh, governing interstate commerce need to apply here because these people can simply ruin your ability to earn a livelihood on the internet. They should happened. not be allowed to do this. It's already happened. It's already happening. We're seeing this happening right now here. And uh, well, the, the illusion of democracy has just fallen down. It's not, That's right. It's and not the question is, the question is, does Brazil have the understanding to do this? Do they have the consciousness, first of all, to be aware that they are being marginalized by these uh, non-governmental uh, organizations? Do they have consciousness. Now, I ask this because there's a large group of people in America who do not have this consciousness, and they are known as conservatives. Yeah. 
conservatism is completely irrelevant now. It's a completely ideolo uh, obsolete ideology because it cannot address the contemporary situation. Conservatism is the only source of evil is government. So if government does, isn't doing it to you, then it's okay. Then it's freedom. Well, wait a minute. That's not that, it's not that simple. You know, you have, got, you have entities now that are stronger than government. So what does conservatism have to do with it? Well, you can't, they can't see the problem. That's precisely the problem. So when you have a situation in Brazil, when you're constantly oscillating between Marxism and some form of conservative ideology, you're never going to address the problem. You will never, you need a Catholic-based understanding that is rooted in reality of the sort that we have in Poland. That's 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 the solution. Yeah, that's that's what I, what I was going to say. If I let's say if we if we wanted to do a, a tour, a book tour with you, that for the libido or for uh, generic modernists, I don't think I would be able to you know bring you with safety when I with to, to you know make you uh, uh, go uh, a lot of uh, you know places to do, talk about the book without a reprehension from the church. You know, because that's one of the things I I I, uh, I think we haven't uh, different from uh, Poland, and uh, from what I from what I am getting from your argument, which with which I I agree, um, the the church is the force. The I mean, if not the institution, let's say, humanly speaking, I know it's not uh, like that, but let's say, uh, if not the institution, the Catholic culture let's say embodied in people and i don't think absolutely I don't absolutely it's a culture and the yeah. church has informed the culture and that is what saved the polish nation to this day even when they didn't have a country yeah. when they didn't yeah. have a country of their own the church preserved the polish nation and that's a difference between poland and brazil because it, we, we that we don't have a, a very strong catholic uh, culture here and we have a lot of uh, influence from protestantism a lot of uh, different types of it and masonry and uh, and, and and African rituals etc etc I don't think you asked this uh, if our uh, people has a conscience about what's happening I don't I think that we well it's hard to generalize it because it's a very big country but uh, I think we are in a way you know, getting the sense of what's happening, like there are some companies that are, you know, out of their way and, and very uh, powerful, but I don't think that the response is very unified with uh, Catholic uh, thinking, Catholic morale. It's, it's, it's diverse, it's dispersed. Right. That is, you're, we're exactly the same situation as the United States. They're yep. very similar situations. You, except that in Brazil, you had a, a, a much larger percentage of Catholics, okay? The, 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 uh, the United States ended up being an English colony. It was a Protestant country, and the Catholics were all considered immigrants, uh, lower class, and uh, inferior people, okay? That changed in 1960 when John F. Kennedy became president, but at that point, a new strategy evolved of basically co-opting the Catholics themselves, and the culmination of that is Joe Biden. Yeah. The man who call, calls himself a Catholic and does everything that the oligarchs want, okay? I, I, I like abortion, he's m the most rabid supporter of abortion that you can imagine. That became the solution. Well, that's not a solution. And what it did, uh, what you had was in America, 
was the decapitation of the Catholic Church when the universities were taken over by the government. Uh, and Notre Dame University, the theft of Notre Dame University by uh, Theodore Hesburgh, putting it under a private board of uh, trustees, and then uh, basically turning it into a government institution, decapitated the Catholic people of the United States because it removed the intellectuals, the people who are supposed to explain things intellectually to the Catholic population. I, dem I, I deal with this explicitly at the end of Logos Rising when Thomism came to the New World from France, Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson came over. Uh, Maritain formed the uh, uh, Maritain Center and the Medieval Institute at Notre Dame. And then Hesburgh uh, and uh, an Irish priest by the name of Erna McMullen struggled Logos in its cradle at Notre Dame and became the paradigm for all of these Catholic universities rejecting Thomism, uh, leading to the consequences of today, where basically when you walk across the Notre Dame campus, you see more homosexual flags flying than papal flags or American flags. It's a complete homosexual takeover of, of Catholic education. Well, are you familiar with the uh, Brazilian Catholic writer Gustavo Corção? What's his name? Gustavo or Gustav uh, Corção. No. Yeah, he, he, he writes about it. He, he, he has a book that has, it's actually translated in English. It, the translation says, uh, uh, Who If I Cry Out, I guess is the name. Well, that's a, a novel. And he has, uh, he has written a book called uh, Le Siècle de l'Inter, or the, the, um, the Century of, you know, of Hell or Nothing, actually. In Portuguese, it's the, secul the, the, the Century of Nothing. And uh, he writes about the takeover of the Catholic Church by the uh, the uh, by these uh, ideologies that you're referring to, and um, he was here in the in the 50s and the 60s watching it, and, and the whole thing, as he regards it, uh, came through the Dominicans, and, and exactly with uh, Jacques Maritain and uh, with other. Uh, uh, with other uh, figures of the time. So you mentioned uh, Logos Rising, and I, 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 I wanted to, talk, uh, to ask you something about this book as well, in which you uh, uh, explore the history of the concept of, of Logos. And then you move on to discuss the Logos of history itself, that is the, the intelligibility of historic process. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about this book? Yes, yes. By the, by the way, I, I, to get back to your last point, uh, Maritain broke with Garigou Lagrange. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the issue was Vichy France. And Maritain sided with... V uh, Garigou Lagrange said that uh, uh, Vichy France was the most Catholic government since the French Revolution in France. And Maritain was, uh, I think, a kind of opportunist. He saw which way the wind was blowing and he sided with the Americans. And as a result, uh, it was... Th th they broke. Thomism broke. And they, their friendship was an indication of how Thomism was going to break up. If you had to ask me who was responsible in the United States, it would be the Jesuits, not the Dominicans. Okay, even though the Dominicans have been affected by it. But th that is the last day. I, that is about Logos rising. Logos is uh, the Greek word for uh, rationality. And so I wanted to, I, I, during this period of time, I was spending a lot of time going to Iran and I confronted with the, how do we talk to, Iranians. How do we talk to them? 
because uh, it's a different religion. And I decided, you know, a lot of conversation, a lot of different arrangements. And at one point I decided, I don't want to get involved in Catholic Muslim dialogue. I think that's a waste of time. All it does is confirm you in your position. And, and when you talk to the mullahs, for the most part, I, maybe I had a bad experience, but you can't talk to them anyway. Because the mullahs that I talked to all were flaming examples of sola scriptura. So uh, you know, uh, uh, this one guy, you know, a guy I like, uh, kept bringing me in contact with this mullah. So he arranges a, a meeting in Qualm. That goes nowhere. You know, we tried to t I tried to talk about sex. And all he could say was, just uh, because you start a Coke doesn't mean you should finish a Coke. And the cameraman says, oh, I, don't I don't agree with that. The cameraman was a better theologian than the mullah. So then they bring me together with the mullah again, this time in Mashhad. And he started, I, so I thought, I know, we're right on the Eurasian plain here. It's the Silk Road. You can see where the camels used to walk in. Let's talk about the wheel. I tried to talk about the invention of the wheel, uh, the horse, about language, about uh, the evolution of consciousness. And he interrupts me in the middle and says, no, that's wrong. I, actually, we're talking about the domestication of the dog. I said, what do you mean that's wrong? I said, you know, the dogs start showing up in grave sites here at a certain time. Before that, they were not domesticated. Now they're domesticated. No, he said, the man did not do this on his own. Uh, a prophet taught these people how to domesticate the dog and make the wheel. I said, a prophet? We're talking about 13,000 years ago. Where was the prophet? Uh, Islam didn't come into existence until, uh, you know, 1,500 years ago. Where was, he said, well, um, uh, I said, well, how do you know this? He said, it's in the Hadith. Oh. Which are which is the commentary to the Quran? I said, first of all, okay, look, I don't, I'm not a Muslim, I don't accept the Quran as canonical, and I certainly do not accept the Hadith as canonical. So how are we going to talk? Well, you can't talk. You can't talk to a mullah whose everything is basically uh, based on the Quran. All knowledge is contained in the Quran. I can't. We can't go that way. And so this was basically my desire to talk, let's go back and talk about what we have in common, which is Logos, which all rational creatures have in common. And not only that, Logos is mandatory. It's, you know, we, I am a Catholic by faith. I accept the teachings of the church by faith, and I can't force that faith on anyone. But I am, a, I am reasonable by, by, by nature, I try to be reasonable because that is my nature. And I, mean, I have a duty to be reasonable. And you have a duty to be reasonable. And the main manifestation of Logos in this regard is speech. This is how we communicate with each other. And I said, this will be the foundation. And that was the genesis of uh, the book Logos Rising. So at the beginning, it's just the development of Logos in human history. And then at a certain point, we realize that history itself has its own Logos. And then we talk about that in, in the second part of the book. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I hope we can do this. Uh, we can do a Brazilian edition very soon of this. And uh, we can talk about that a later. And uh, well, Mr. Jones. I, I, think, I think that this is the moment for, for Brazil. Okay, we, we've, you're, you're, 
they're constantly, it's not very different from the situation in the United States, except other than you have a much larger Catholic population. But the problem with the United States is you always have to adopt some type of alien ideology in order to talk in public. And it doesn't work for Catholics. Yeah. So it's either the alien ideology of liberalism or Marxism or something like that, or the alien ideology of conservatism, both of which evolved in England. Okay, Karl Marx spent all this time in the library, the, the British Library in London. Okay, he admired the English. It's basically an inter-mural uh, uh, inter, uh, sport here. Mm -hmm. uh, intramural sport uh, of the English ideology, this constant vacillation back and forth between Marxism and, and conservatism. And we have to break out of that because the Catholics are always dis discomforted. As I said, you know, it's all the Catholics are always putting on shoes that don't fit. And then they're always being uh, criticized because they're complaining that their feet hurt. Well, no, it's not. It, it's the fault of the shoe, not of the foot. The shoe is made for the foot, not the foot for the shoe. And as in places like Brazil and the United States, we're always trying to fit ourselves into shoes that don't fit. We as Catholics, we got to stop doing this. We have to start talking like Catholics and thinking like Catholics. And that's why I wrote these books. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, do you have any uh, last advice for our Lent period we're going through as Catholics, what we could, uh, you know, aside from uh, uh, the, uh, the instructions we, uh, we have received from the church and our, our spiritual directors. directors. Yes, uh, we, we need to pray for unity uh, because as I said, I was able to work with the bishops in Poland, but I can't work with the bishops in the United States. And I suspect I'd have trouble in Brazil because these bishops have internalized the commands of their oppressors. You will definitely have trouble. That's so you, so you got some, some groups are liberation theologians, you know, so they've internalized Marxism as the, the, the lens through which they view the gospel. That's a disaster. We've already had that disaster. But then in reaction to that, you have neoconservative Catholicism in America uh, uh, at the time of uh, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, those people. That was a disaster, too. It's time to be uh, uh, to start talking about Catholics. It's time we have to pray for unity and pray that the bishops will come to understand that they're not preaching the gospel. Yep. They're not preaching the gospel. They're preaching some type of distortion of the gospel. And the, where it's most apparent is with the question of the Jews. Okay. They have been completely captured by this, this failed experiment known as Catholic Jewish dialogue. It's had a catastrophic effect on the Catholic church uh, and uh, the unity of the Catholic church. You can have either unity or you can have good relations with the Jews, but you can't have both. Can't have both. So let's pray for unity and pray that the, the veil will be lifted from the eyes of the people who are supposed to lead us. Well, Mr. Jones, I want to thank you again for the time and your attention. I know you're a very busy man, so I really appreciate uh, your kindness to accept uh, the invitation for this uh, interview. I hope this increases uh, the interest in Brazilian edition of your book, Degenerate Moderns. And thank you. Thank you for having me. All the best. Obr obrigado. <laughs> De nada. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's my Portuguese. <laughs>